I'm just saying never give up your superpower, which is watching people move and helping them move better. All right. And the great thing is the better you get at this, the longer you do it, the less wrong you are. And we were just talking about this today. It was Tall Dave, Grace, and myself, and we were having this great discussion over lunch. And it's like, look, hate to tell you this, but you're always wrong, right? Like we're always wrong to some degree. Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and today we are gonna talk about big picture program design. Now, I don't know about you, but I know when I was starting off in this field, I really, really struggled with program design. I remember literally it felt like I was trying to paint the Mona Lisa the first time I'd ever touched a canvas. And I know a lot of young coaches and a lot of veteran coaches alike struggle when it comes to program design. They don't understand, some of them don't understand the basic fundamentals. Others really struggle with some of the more nuanced elements, and some just struggle in the sense that they don't have systems in place. They don't have templates in place, and templates might get a bad word, but you know, the more you see people, the more you realize, hey, there's a lot of people that you can group into buckets here. So in today's show, I'm essentially going to give you a 30,000 foot view of how I look at program design. We're really just going to look at those broad strokes and the big picture because look, the finer details of program design, I could probably do a multi-day, if not a week-long course on all the elements of program design, how all of those little nuances and influences can impact the outcome of how an exercise is performed or how it impacts the program as a whole. But what I want to do today is give you this 30,000-foot view, and then at a later point in time, we're gonna do something more detailed. And I haven't figured out quite how I'm gonna do that yet. I don't think a podcast is probably the best way to do it because we need more visuals, but either in some form of like masterclass, uh, maybe it's something attached to iFastU, but we're gonna take a deeper dive into these, these ideas and these concepts later on. But for today, I'm gonna talk about five things that I feel are really critical to designing a great program. So we're gonna take a quick break And then we're going to jump into this awesome episode about big picture program design. It seems like almost every day I talk to a young trainer or coach who was frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if this sounds anything like you, I've got something that I know will help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you, who are serious about the results they get and know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is going to take the last 20 years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In it, you'll learn how to use the R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. How to create the culture, environment, and relationships with everyone you train so you can get the absolute best results. The exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym, from squatting and deadlifting to pressing and pulling and everything in between. And last but not least, I've added an entire section on my assessment process and how to use that to write programs faster and more effectively than ever before. Of course, there's a ton more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the certification is all about. Now, here's the thing. 
Spots for the certification will open twice per year for a limited time only. If you're interested in learning more, my next certification will launch in March 2021. And if you join my free insiders list, you'll be able to save $200 when it opens. To get on the insiders list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, completecoachcertification.com, and then stay tuned for our launch emails coming very soon. Thanks so much for your support, and I hope you'll pick up a copy of the Complete Coach Certification when it launches. All right, my friend, let's dive in and let's talk about big picture program design. Now, before we start talking about program design, I want to talk about two things that I've just kind of labeled for starters. So whenever I craft one of these shows, I've got an outline, and I think sometimes when it comes to program design, or actually every time, it's critically important that we get ourselves in the right mindset. It's not just like, oh yeah, I'm gonna write Johnny's program now. It's like, okay, I need to lock in because I'm gonna write Johnny's program now. And that's that's how I try and take it. And I've talked about this in numerous solo shows before, but it's that idea of taking your craft seriously, but not taking yourself seriously. So for starters, before you write this program, I want you to kind of commit to two things. Number one, I want you to commit to writing your best program. So if Susie wants to improve her vertical jump so she can make the high school volleyball team, or Johnny is serious about getting healthy, he wants to drop 30 pounds because, you know, his wife's unhappy with him. He doesn't have energy to play with his kids. He's underperforming at work. If somebody is putting their livelihood in your hands, it's on us to take that seriously and to give them our best effort when we write a program. We're not just slapping something together. And, you know, I I would venture to guess that if you're listening to this show, you're not interested in being bottom barrel. You're not interested in being mediocre. You want to be a great trainer. You want to be a great coach. So have that intention early on to write your absolute best program. And then the second thing I want you to know, and this is hugely important, because when everybody on the internet is telling you how smart they are and how much they know and how little you know and how you know, you're know you not doing anything right, I want you to understand this. Training is complex. Humans are complex. And by default, there is not one best way to write a program. If 10 of us all wrote a program and the goal was to increase somebody's squat max 10 pounds, and we all did something totally different. In that same period of time, we all saw the result that we wanted. That just proves we all have success. There's so many different ways you can create an adaptation or you can get a response from a client or athlete. So just know and understand just because you do something different, just because it's not the way that I would do it or Bill Hartman would do it, or Eric Cressy, or Joel Jameson, or Lee Taft, just because you're not doing it exactly like us doesn't mean it's wrong. It's so important to hear. As a young coach, do what you know best. Commit to writing your best program, and then know and understand that with time, your programs will improve. They will get better. You'll become more efficient, more streamlined, but it doesn't happen overnight. All right, so for starters, Two things, commit to writing your best program and no one understand there is not one best program. All right, now let's dive in. Step-by-step program design. If I had to give you my big rocks when it comes to writing a program, there's essentially five things I think you gotta do. And I'm gonna give you the bullet points here 
and then we're going to dive into each with a little bit more detail. So number one, you got to have some form of an assessment, some form of dialogue or Q&A with your client or athlete. Number two, you got to have a vision. Number three, you rough draft it. Okay, rough draft is arguably the most important step and it's the one people skip the most. Number four, you plan the movements and then five, you structure the movements. All right, now again, broad strokes here. So let's talk about the assessment and the Q&A. And Bill Hartman, Eric Cressy, myself, I don't even remember when it was, maybe 2010, we cre created Assess and Correct. And I know we're not the first people to say this, but if you're not assessing, you're guessing. And I think there's still a lot of relevance to that. When somebody new comes to you and you don't know how their body moves, you don't know what their, their biases are, you don't know what they're good at or what they're not good at, if you don't take that time early on to assess them and figure out all of these things, you're going to waste a lot of time on the back end trying to figure out what they do and don't do well. And I'll be honest, that's not the way I want to roll. I would much rather take you know, an hour, 90 minutes, maybe even two hours with a client. I mean, I was telling Grace, our intern today, a lot of times now, yeah, I kind of have an assessment, but I'll stretch that assessment out over their entire first week before I have anything set in stone because I, I want and need time to watch them move and to really call out some of the things that make them unique and maybe some of the things that they need to work more on. So back in the day, people were obsessed with our assessment process at IFAST. And you know, I think a big part of that is uh, being associated with Bill Hartman. But you know, back in the day for our fitness clients, we used to use a very table test focused assessment. So somebody comes in, they wanna lose 20 pounds, and we have them on the table for an hour and we're checking hip IR and hip ER, shoulder IR and ER, trunk rotation. And then we're putting them in these positions and we're trying to do resets to try and get more motion. And like at the end of that, that session, people are just like, what was that? Like, why did I do that? What, what is that? What does that do for me? Or how does that benefit me? And it was really hard to kind of connect the dots. And in fact, I think what that did was it turned a lot of people away from us because people were coming to us with a fitness focused goal and we appeared outwardly that we were giving them a PT or physical therapy focused solution. So there was this massive disconnect there. And I remember, you know, a couple years ago, we just realized, hey, this is not working. Like we're selling people because we are good and because we get results, but this assessment process is not a great first exposure or first impression as to what we do at IFAST. So as a result of that, we changed everything. We blew that assessment up. And so now if you look at our assessment, there's essentially three big markers, right? There's the initial Q&A where we learn more about them. There's the movement assessment, which is probably the biggest part. And then there's the post Q&A. But that middle movement assessment, yeah, we might look at some shoulder IRs and ERs, especially if it's maybe an overhead athlete, like a baseball player. If you don't touch their shoulder, they feel like you're not really looking at their body appropriately. But we may do a little bit of that, but it's like two minutes of the assessment. The rest of the time, we're watching, watching them squat, watching them lunge, push up, toe touches, half kneeling, split stance activities. So we can figure out essentially in that one hour what exercises they do do and don't do well 
and we know immediately what program to write for them because we've watched them move and we already have determined these activities work, these don't, and it cuts out so much legwork on the back end. So if you want to learn more about that, shameless plug, check out Complete Coach Cert because I just added all of the uh, assessment modules there and it is a massively, massively impactful way to do things. It makes your life so much easier because immediately you essentially have your first program written for you from a movement perspective. Then another piece that I think is really important is having this Q&A and having this dialogue. And this is something you can't gloss over, but I think you have to ask and understand what are their goals for working with you? Because as movement specialists, as trainers and coaches, I think most of us know at this point in time, we want people to be able to squat well. We want them to be able to do a split squat or a lunge. We want them to be able to hinge. Those things are all important to us, but we also have to understand what they want to get out of it. And then our goal is to find this beautiful blend of what they want and what they need. And then the final piece of that puzzle is figuring out what do they need to change. And so one of the things that I think is really important is as you go through this Q&A process is giving them this idea of, okay, this is what you want to do. This is our aspirational goal. And then we bring it back to something surface level and really nitty gritty, like, okay, great. You want to lose these 20 pounds. That's awesome. Now, what do we need to do to help you achieve that? What do you need to change about your training, your nutrition, your recovery, or your mindset to help you get there? So the assessment in the Q&A, even though it's not a part of the program design per se, taking that first hour or that first 90 minutes with a client or athlete is an absolute lifesaver. And it gives you the necessary information to write your best possible program. So that's step one. You got to do an assessment and a Q&A with your client. Number two, and again, we talk about things that people skip over. I think a lot of times people go from assessment and Q&A, and they go right into, all right, it's time to write the program. But I think these middle two steps are things that tend to get glossed over that are really, really important. Second, you've just taken the time to assess this person. You've got an idea as to how they move, what they want to get out of it. Now, this is where you get to put your creative hat on and create a vision for them. All right. And the way I like to think about this, it probably sounds incredibly like narcissistic or egotistical, but to give you uh, a visual representation, it's like Michelangelo, right? When he sculpted David, somebody asked, how did you do it? He's like, I uh, had a vision and then I just started chipping away until I created what I wanted. And I think that's what we should be thinking of as trainers and coaches is, okay, this is where this person is at now, All right, They are this block how do we carve it? How do we chisel it? How do we create the type of human being they want? And that will help us understand the process and the path that we need to follow. So you got to ask yourself, what does your program have to do to help them get there? If it's a fat loss client, we know we need uh, higher overall volumes, a lot of reps per set, incomplete rest periods. We know their nutrition's got to be on point. <laughs> not even going to go there on the finer points of that. You can go to other podcasts where they like to debate that kind of stuff, you know, but there's certain rules you have to follow to get somebody to lose body fat. If somebody wants to get stronger, they have to use generally lower reps per set. 
They've got to use longer rest periods. They got to use big bang compound exercises. They got to work to put weight on the bar, if not every week, every couple weeks over time religiously to see increasing levels of strength. So there's certain things you have to do. But this was something that was really important. I think one of the best examples I have of this was when I worked with Roy Hibbert. And man, crazy to think this was almost like 10 years ago now. But Roy came in and he was really doing well at this point. He was really like looking to take the next step. He was already working with Mike Roussel on his nutrition. And so when Roy came to us, we crafted this vision for him of, look, we want you to be at X body weight. We, but at the same time, we want a big body. We want a strong, physical, imposing body, but not just strong, physical, and like lumbering and deconditioned. We want you to be in great shape. And our goal was, hey, look, I want you to be able to day one of the season, play 30 to 36 minutes any night you need to with no issues whatsoever. So we had this really strong vision that Roy and I created together to help him achieve that level of success, okay? So whether it's Roy Hibbert, whether it's with some of the athletes that I'm working with now, because you know the thing is, is like people change and people evolve, especially athletes. The nice thing about athletes is they have this really like focused in season. And then in most cases, they have a really dedicated off season. So the off season is this great point to kind of reconnect. Okay, how'd the season go? Good, bad, whatever. Okay, now what's our goal for this off season? How are we gonna continue to evolve? So, you know, some of my guys are looking to add a little bit of muscle mass. All right, that changes the vision. One of the gals that I'm working with is looking to actually cut a little bit of weight. She wants to improve her conditioning, improve her explosiveness. So we have a different vision for her, all right? So what I'm trying to get at here is you have to have a vision and you have to understand this isn't just a one-time thing. Yes, it helps to do it up front, but as your clients, as your athletes evolve, it helps to reconnect, you know, whether it's quarterly, like we try and do at IFAST, whether it's every at the start of every off season with your athletes, you constantly have to recreate this vision and figure out where is this person at now? Where do they want to go? And then it makes your program design process so much easier because you have a much clearer path from A to B. Okay, number three. We talked about the vision and why that's so important, but number three is something that I don't think enough people do, and I promise if you start doing this, it will make your life easier and it will make your programs better. Number three, you gotta do a rough draft, right? <laughs> and as I was uh, setting up the, the outline for this show, I immediately cued the tag team in my head, you know, the taking it back to the old school. So if we could just drop in tag team, whoop, there it is, into this, that's what I would be dropping right now because I don't know about you, but I am old school. I think well with pen and paper, like laptops and technology and all that stuff's great, I love it. But when I wanna get really serious and focused on something, a lot of times I'm gonna sketch it out in a rough draft on pen and paper first. And here's why. I feel like a lot of times when I'm sitting down, I'm in front of my laptop and I've got my Microsoft Word document open or I'm writing a program in Train Heroic, there's almost like this pressure to write it perfect immediately. Even though you can edit it, I know it sounds ridiculous. Can you edit it? Yes, but there's this inherent need to be perfect right off the bat. Versus if I've got a pen and paper or pencil and paper, man, I can 
write something in, I can scratch it out. I can have like arrows that are moving something up or down in a workout. It just feels way more malleable and I can be more creative. And I feel like ultimately I end up writing a better program when I do something on pen and paper first. So there's another kind of analogy or parallel to this when I was writing a lot and I always joked around, but I'm like, I, I never wanted people to see my first draft because it was so bad. I mean, there would be times where I'd be like halfway through a sentence and I wouldn't know how to end it. And I would just start typing blah, 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 or I'd have, you know, a paragraph and I was like more here. I mean, it was so disjointed, so unorganized. But what that did, that first draft did, was it allowed me to get a lot of that stuff out of my brain. It's a massive brain dump, a purge, if you will, and it gets a lot of the good stuff on paper. Now, it's not perfect, but it gets it out of your head and it gets it on paper. And what it does when you write like this is it, you shut off your internal editor. And this is something that every great writer will tell you. The more you're trying to edit your stuff as you write, the harder it is to write. So instead of editing as you go, brain dump, get it all out and then go back a second time and start to thin it out, clean it up, organize it a little bit better, fill in those gaps. And so I think whether it's writing or whether it's writing a program, it's so much easier when you do it this way. Another great thing about going analog versus digital, I mean, I can put the laptop away. I can put the phone away. There's no distractions. So I'm not getting a text message or answering a call or seeing a Slack message or, you know, whatever the case may be, there's less distractions. And I think we can all agree anytime we're less distracted and we're more focused, the end product is probably going to be a lot better. So that's point number three, have a rough draft, take the time. Does it take a little extra time? Yes, absolutely. And nobody's going to argue that, but I feel like that time is well spent and it's gonna help you ultimately craft a better program. Number four, plan the movements. And again, we gotta kind of update the way we think about program design. And I remember, I mean, I've read so many articles, listened to so many podcasts, watched so many presentations on program design. Like, it, other than maybe coaching and queuing, I can't think of anything else that I've probably dived into deeper than program design. And one old school thought process was that exercise selection is the last thing you consider. So when I first started designing programs, everybody was like, oh, you know, everybody's gonna squat, bench, deadlift, chin up, lunge, whatever. Like there were the staple, like 30 exercises that everybody did. So they just assume, well, exercise selections last. And they were really focused on chasing an adaptation right? Think about how all the old school program design books were written. There's like an anatomical adaptation phase. There's a hypertrophy phase. There's a strength phase. There's a power phase. Like we thought there were these very like clean blocks that everybody wrote. And now it's not just about creating an adaptation, but for most of us, most of us, it's about improving movement. So this is the thing when I'm working with a soccer player or a basketball player, sure, I've got an, an anatomical adaptation or some sort of physiological adaptation I'm trying to create, but I'm always trying to create that on top of 
a better movement pattern as well. All right. So if that was the old school thought process. The new school thought process is if improving movement quality is high priority, it's literally the first thing you should consider. Like the first. So when I'm writing programs for my athletes now, if I know they need to be able to lunge, you best believe they're going to see a variation of the lunge pattern a heck of a lot over the course of their training week. We're going to have one day that looks like damn near all we're doing is lunging. And then there's another day in there where we're doing variations of it to continue to try and beat that pattern up. All right. So if you struggle with this and you're like, oh, that sounds great, but I don't know how to implement this. Well, here are two things to get you started. Number one, you have to ask yourself, what movement goals did you set for them? Right? So for some of my athletes, it's uh, shift their center of gravity back or help them turn better side to side or learn to push off their right and load their left. All right. So if you look at my programs at the top, a lot of times I have goals and it's not just the goal for the client. It's the goal for me as their coach. So a movement goal could be something that you set for them. And then the other thing that you can ask yourself, not just is what movement goals did you set for them, but you have to ask yourself what activities will help you achieve those movements. All right. So let's say I want to shift somebody's center of gravity back. All right. That's the goal. Now I know, okay, what activities will help me do that? Okay. Well, anything where I'm dragging a sled backwards, that would help. Uh, a reaching activity like a push up should help. Uh, squatting activity, maybe with the heels elevated and the back open and focusing on sitting down should help. You see where I'm going with this, right? So you've got to dive in and figure out, okay, what movements do you need them to be able to do? And then what activities will help you actually achieve it? So if you can do those two things, I guarantee your program design and choosing your movements is going to be much, much easier. And here's the great thing. Again, if you've dialed in your assessment process and you're looking at a lot of different movements and activities when you're assessing them, immediately it should be way easier, right? This is another downside to all of the table tests. You can put somebody on a table and be like, oh, wow, well, uh, you know, you've only got 10 degrees of hip IR on both sides. And so you probably can't squat or deadlift, but, but you don't know that, right? And you don't know how maybe you could modify that activity to help them create more IR. So there's, there's so many benefits to diving in and watching people move in your first session. And I don't care what you use. You know, some people, you know, love the FMS. If you do, great. Um, if you love any sort of movement-based assessment and you can tease out what you need to from it, that's great. But one thing that I'm trying to continuously stress is, hey man, table tests are great. And if you're a PT and that's what you've learned and that's your strong suit, your superpower, use it. But for most of us as fitness or movement professionals, table tests aren't our strong suit. So I'm never going to tell you don't learn them. Don't, don't uh, try and understand them better or look at them and understand how they impact movement. I'm just saying never give up your superpower, which is watching people move and helping them move better. All right. And the great thing is, the better you get at this, the longer you do it, the less wrong you are. And we were just talking about this today. It was Tall Dave, Grace, and myself, and we were having this great discussion over lunch. And it's like, look, hate to tell you this, but you're always wrong, right? Like, we're always wrong to some degree. 
We might get the change or the adaptation we want, but that doesn't mean it was 100% the right answer. And the great thing is, the longer you do this, the more experience you get, the more reps you see, the better your ability to predict is, and you're just wrong a lot less, right? So over time, you're gonna work to refine that exercise selection. You're gonna choose better exercises so that ultimately, you don't need 30 exercises to fix one movement issue, you got two. And those two work really well for that particular client, okay? So that's number four, plan the movements. And then the final step, as far as our big rocks go when we're planning a workout, is structuring the movements. So I kind of think of it like this. Once you've determined the activities, now you wanna to start to think about how you achieve the adaptation you wanna create. So at least for me, it's movement first, adaptation second, and, and maybe not even like a one, two, but like a one A, one B. Like they're both important, but for me, movement is such a big piece of the puzzle. I wanna teach them to move well, and then hopefully I can, I can create the adaptation that I want while chasing an improvement in movement as well. Okay, so when somebody comes to you and they say, hey, I wanna lose fat, I wanna build muscle, I wanna increase strength, I want to improve my athletic performance. Okay, all of those things are giving you clues to the type of program you need to create. Now, the one that's toughest is athletic development. It's also why I adore it so much is because so many of these other things are kind of linear, right? Like fat loss is kind of linear. Like there's a one kind of program you kind of got to write. Hypertrophy, eh, you can tweak it a little bit, but there's one kind of program. Athletic development is fun because there are changes and evolutions to the program. Like that first block, maybe you are trying to create an anatomical adaptation. You're trying to create some changes in the tissue quality or improve tissue resiliency. You're trying to build an aerobic base. You know, that second block, maybe you're chasing some force output. You get to the end, now it's like power, it's conditioning. So that's why I enjoy the athletic development side so much is because in one off-season program, you're chasing a lot of goals with the end goal being, hey, I want this person to be fast, strong, explosive, well-conditioned, mobile, resilient so that they don't break down, okay? Now, when I'm building out kind of this, this program and I've got my exercises selected, the way I start with it is I always think about time under tension first. And I don't know if most people do this. I think some people may jump right into sets and reps and that's fine, but I think your time under tension kind of sets the stage for everything else. Because if you're doing something, let's just use something extreme, right? Like a five zero one tempo. So five seconds down, no pause in the bottom, one second up. Just imagine a squat with that kind of tempo or cadence. That's awful, <laughs> that's awful, right? So if you're writing a three by 12 and you've got three by 12 on your paper and then you write in your time under tension, Dude, you just wrote a 60 second set of squats. Like that's awful. And maybe that's what they need. You never know. Like if that's, you're willfully giving that to somebody and they need it, that's, that's fine. But I prefer to do time under tension first because I think then that helps determine what set and rep scheme you need. Because a lot of times, hey look, if I'm doing five zero one, even if I'm chasing hypertrophy, I may only need six to eight reps to achieve the outcome that I want. So time under tension works best for me. 
if you've not ever used that strategy before, I think it works quite well because then you can take that, you multiply it by your reps and you have an idea as to how long the set is and that'll tell you with some degree of precision what adaptation you're gonna chase. So you got that. Once you have time under tension, your reps are easy, your sets become a little bit easier and then the final piece is the rest period and the rest period is kind of non-negotiable. Like if you want to shed body fat, you gotta work pretty fast and you gotta have incomplete rest periods. If you want hypertrophy, you rest a little bit longer than that. And if you really wanna get strong or powerful or explosive, you need a heck of a lot of downtime. You almost need to get bored in your rest periods. So I think the time under tension, once you have that, and again, this comes back to your vision, for this block, for this training program, what do you need? Once you have the time under tension in place, it makes all of those other variables that much easier. Okay, now, those were my five big picture items, but you know I'm a man of the people, so I've got a sixth one, it's a bonus point, okay? Now this is really important. If you are a veteran coach, you already know this, but you might need to hear it. If you're a young coach, you definitely need to hear this because chances are you're not doing it or you're not heeding this advice often enough. Number six, bonus point, what's on the paper isn't always what happens. Look, life happens, my friend. I had a couple days last week where life just kind of kicked me in the ass, not in a bad way, just lots of things were happening and I was packed with clients. Uh, I had some projects that needed to get finished up around the house. For whatever reason, I wasn't sleeping the best and I was still trying to punch the clock in the gym. And let me tell you, those were not my best training sessions in recent memory. Then comes back around to this week and I'm sleeping great. I'm a little bit more on top of all the things that I need to have done. My body feels good. I'm doing the things outside the gym that I know ensure a good workout. And by default, I've had a couple great training sessions this week. So I think when you're a young coach, or when you're early in your career, you feel compelled to stick with whatever you wrote. It's like, hey, it says three by 10 on the paper. Well, that's fine. But just because it says three by 10 on the paper doesn't mean that's what you have to do that day. If somebody came in and they slept five hours or they're under a ton of stress at work or they had a fight with their significant other, hey man, killing them in the gym that day isn't gonna help. In fact, it's probably gonna make them a heck of a lot worse, all right? So you have to understand that just because you wrote that and that sounded great at the time doesn't mean that that's what that client or athlete is prepared to do in the gym that day, right? Now there's another element to this. Let's say you have this program written and you've fleshed it out over four, six, whatever weeks and you're two weeks in and you're like, oh my gosh, like this person's a stud. They are killing it, right? You don't keep them on the same exercise for two or four more weeks just because the program says so. If somebody's killing it, they've demonstrated competency in this movement, you progress them and vice versa. Just because you wrote a four week program doesn't mean you have to feel compelled to change the exercises the next four weeks. Some people need six, eight, maybe even as long as 12 weeks to really dial in or hone in on an exercise. And I am not preaching from the pulpit here right? Like you can throw stones at me. I have made this mistake. I've kept people on a program too long. Some of my high level athletes, they can change 
it sucks, I hate to tell you this, but like genetics are a real thing. Some of these people change in a matter of minutes. They're just that good. Their body awareness, their ability to take cues, to internalize information and put it into practice, it's amazing. And then there's other people, it takes them eight weeks. I essentially give them the same workout for eight weeks straight and they continue to milk it. They continue to get better, okay? So my advice to you is this, don't become a slave to your program. Be malleable, be flexible. Ultimately, do whatever is in the best interest of your clients and your athletes, and you will be successful. Okay, my friend, I really hope this was helpful for you. In kind of conclusion, my five steps or the five pillars to writing great programs from a big picture perspective. Number one, take the time, do an assessment, do a Q&A, figure out what they do and don't do well. Understand what makes them tick. Doing that one session sets the stage for everything else that you do and makes the rest of your program design that much easier. Second, disconnect from everything else and have a vision. Think about where they're at, where they wanna go, and really start to think about what kind of program it's gonna take to help them get from A to B. Number three, go analog and do a rough draft with pen and paper. Don't feel compelled to write the perfect program right off the bat. It's not gonna be perfect regardless, so you might as well take some time, sketch it out, move things around, think about how it might feel when they do a certain superset together or how a certain activity may make them feel. But take the time to create a rough draft because again, it's gonna help you write a better program. Number four, plan the movements. At least for me, Movement is a huge centerpiece of our program. Do we want to create an adaptation? Yes. But for me, underlying and underpinning that, I want to improve somebody's movement. Number five, structure the movements. Like I said, I start with time under tension because I feel like it sets all of the other pieces in motion. Once you have the time under tension, it helps you understand, okay, this is how many reps I need. Once you understand the reps and the the physiological adaptation that that's going to create, then that sets the rest period for you. But if you understand the movements and then you structure the movements based off the tempo, again, I think it's going to help you write a, a much more streamlined and effective program. And then last but not least, remember, don't be slave to what's written down on paper. Treat the person or the athlete that's in front of you that day. We don't train in a vacuum. So if somebody comes in, they're ready to go, crank it up. And if they're not, dial it back. Be smart, train for where they are at on that given day. So my friend, that does it for this week's episode on big picture program design. I really hope you enjoyed it. Even though we didn't jump into all of the finer details and all of the nuance, I hope you took at least one or two things away from the episode. If you did, do me a favor and share this episode with somebody else who may benefit from it. Could be a trainer, a coach, a fellow rehab professional, could be an athlete, it could be somebody that's writing their own programs and just killing themselves in the process. But if you know somebody that would benefit from hearing how I write programs and better understanding how to write programs, please pass it along to them because I would appreciate it more than you know. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you, and we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care.